This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Ayaka Yoshimizu, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Asian Studies at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Yoshimizu is the author of Sex Workers, Waitresses, and Wives, The Disciplining of Women's Bodies in the Taiku Nippo in the Meiji at 150 Digital Teaching Resource, as well as Walking Histories on Making Places, Walking Tours as Ethnography of Place, co-authored with Julia Aoki and published in Volume 18 of Space and Culture in 2015. Dr. Yoshimizu, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. So you published this article on our Meiji at 150 Digital Teaching Resource, Sex Workers, Waitresses, and Wives, looking at Japanese women who come over to Vancouver and work as sex workers and documenting their activities through this Taiduku Nippo newspaper. Can you tell us a little bit about this project? Yeah, let me give you some context of this this research a little bit. So this particular article is based on a co-project with Julia Aoki. And at that time, you were doing kind of not really comparative, but trans-Pacific research, looking at two different spaces of displacement. One is Yokohama in Japan. We are looking at the former brothel district where a lot of sex workers from outside of Japan were working there. And there was a massive police raid happened in 2005. So these women were displaced from the neighborhood. We did a not really comparative, but um, cross-Pacific research about that. And also looking at the downtown east side area where Japantown was formerly located. And we learned about this heritage house, uh, which has been demolished already, located on Alexander Street. And it was used to be a brothel back in um, early 20th century. So we, we were interested in kind of looking into that history behind that house. It turned out that it was located very closely to Japantown, but there were no Japanese women working there. But instead, we kind of discovered this newspaper series written by Shohei Osada and published in Taiku Nippo in early 20th century, uh, documenting detailed lives of sex workers from Japan and working not specifically actually in Vancouver, but in interior BC and further east at brothels run and managed by Japanese people. So that was kind of, uh, we, we encountered this newspaper series. It still remains as the richest historical archival document that provide us you know, with some historical information about that history. So we became interested in translating the series, so we did that. And when we were doing that research, we also started to be interested in looking at how the discourse of the newspaper and how that kind of disciplines women and their behavior and both men and women involved in the sex trade. So you started with this trans-Pacific mm-hmm. comparison of Yokohama and Vancouver in the present day or historically? Our question was not so much about what actually happened at the time, uh, but more about how we engage that past when that history has been actively erased or hasn't been documented so much or maybe uh, depressed. So, so when we deal with that kind of past, how do we engage it in an ethical manner? So that was our question. So it wasn't really comparison, but these places happen to be actually sister cities, Vancouver and Yokohama. Mm. And a lot of people from Japan came from the port of Yokohama to Vancouver. So there is some historical link between these cities. But it was really grew out of our conversation. And I was doing research back in Yokohama at the time. Mm. 
I see. So they were, they were kind of case studies right. for this larger question about discourse. I want to come back to that. But mm-hmm. first, you mentioned there is this historical Japantown in Vancouver that existed pre-1942. So th- there was this brothel on the outskirts of Japantown. But you mentioned that it wasn't staffed by Japanese women. So who, as, as far as you know, who mm-hmm. were some of the people who were working there? It was quite diverse. So the Osada's newspaper series had two parts, and uh, he writes about that specific Alexander Street, that red light district, in the second part. And according to his writing, uh, it was quite diverse. There were a lot of w- white women, but having different background, ethnic background. Mm-hmm. And there were black women too, but not Japanese women working there. But they had Japanese clients. And you mentioned this newspaper series by Osada, which is called the exploration of devil's caves. And this was a euphemism, the makutsu, that he assigned to, or that was used for brothels. Can you tell us a little bit more about this series? He's describing brothels around Canada. But what kind of stuff was he talking about? Mm, So it was quite extensive. There were over 70 installments in the first part. So the topics included the locations of those brothels, the historical kind of how they historically developed and what our current situations are, some detailed stories about individual women and men and their background, and their relationship with the police officers, which varied depending on the town. And there are a lot of individual stories about particular incidents that happened in the brothel, relationship issues, and so on. But we should also note that Vancouver was in no way unique in having these brothels. As you mentioned, they're all over, basically going across Canada along the Trans-Canadian Railway, but also up and down the Pacific coast of North America, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were, um, Seattle was one of the kind of major places where Japanese brothels developed at the turn of the 20th century. So it was quite common across the continent, I think. As Not were, just the West Coast, yeah. actually. As were these newspapers as well. And in your article, you were also writing about the prevalence of these Japanese newspapers in Japanese-American communities and Japanese-Canadian communities, and how the newspapers function as a platform for writings as well. Right, yeah. Uh, they didn't have many potential venues for their literary activities or social activities. In Vancouver, though, there were two competing papers. So Taijiku Nippo was uh, one, and the other was Kanada Shinpo. And they have different kind of background. Kanada Shinpo was um, headed by a Christian organization, and Taijiku Nippo was supported by Buddhist. And so Kanada Shinpo was more assimilationist, too, kind of claiming that Japanese people in Canada should learn English, they should learn Christianity, and assimilate into the mainstream society, mm-hmm. whereas Taijiku Nippo was much more nationalist. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't aware of the Buddhist connections to Taijiku Nippo before. That's really interesting. But both papers uh, were against prostitution for different reasons. Mm. And yeah, so Taijiku Nippo had its own motivation to eradicate prostitution in Vancouver. Um, I think Osada and Yamazaki, who was the owner of the organization, they both were concerned about the racism in Canada. And in order for Japanese people to be accepted to the mainstream society, they thought that these shameful behavior among Japanese people should be eradicated. Mm-hmm. So at least that's the kind of motivation, the major motivation that drove this series mm-hmm. on paper. But maybe there are other factors too, that immigrant papers or 
diasporic media at the time, today still are underfunded. Mm-hmm. So they, they had to make sure that they sell papers too. And this series was, re- was really successful. And actually mm-hmm. they edited uh, the first part and published as it as a book. Mm-hmm. Right. And I guess the kind of salacious stories of prostitution mm-hmm. would be a, a good way to sell papers. I wasn't aware of the Buddhist ties to the Taiduka Nippo before, but that does offer a little glimpse onto perhaps why they use this term makutsu. I mean, the kind of devil's cave and, and the ideas of eradicating the shameful behaviors has this kind of Buddhist overtone, doesn't it? And maybe looking at these brothels as a type of evil place associated with devils, for example. But where does that term come from? Is that something that Osada himself oh, came uh, up with? Or where does this term devil's caves come from? Right, that makutsu is a very common term mm. that was used back in Japan mm. and that referred to brothels. And he, Osada himself, is very much aligned with the idea that Yukichi Fukuzawa had in mind. And he is the person who redefined women in pleasure district using kind of Western idea of prostitute or prostitution. Mm-hmm. So women in, in, for example, geisha in the pleasure district wasn't disdained so much. At the time, there was people kind of admired their skills or they sympathized with their experience and background. But Fukuzawa really kind of replaced the idea of entertainers in the pleasure district with this idea of prostitutes. So I think Osada had a similar idea about the women in the brothels. But it wasn't only Osada writing about these brothels in the Taidu Kanipo, right? There was even, as you wrote about in your article, there was ballots for voting on who had the best waitresses. Right, so I found those sections when I was looking into the, the series. So I was looking at other sections of the paper as I followed the series and realized that there are both kind of praising and condemning women happening at the same time on the paper. So these little sections call for votes and the readers are encouraged to vote on the best women in, in the Japanese community, best waitresses, kind of model ladies and so on. While they are also kind of discursively punishing uh, women in the sex trade or women who are committing adultery or even just laughing aloud on the street was something that, you know, women should be ashamed of. So on the one hand, there's this kind of upholding of women's virtue through this kind of quite literally crowdsourcing of popularity contests for who is the most model woman at the same time as there's this denigration of the prostitute for somehow shaming women. And so then in your article, you are making an argument about the disciplinary effects on Japanese women's bodies through the newspaper. Right, yeah. I think immigrant newspapers at the time, it's applicable to other communities too, function as a micro-institution that taught immigrants who come from very different social economic background about what it means to be an ideal citizen in, not just in Japanese immigrant community, but also in Canada. But it was driven also by this Meiji ideology of Ryosai Kenbo, good wife, wise mother. The idea that a woman has to be a good assistant for her husband. She has to wise enough to raise kids and educate children. There are a lot of cases where women who came to Canada as a picture brides, uh, they're devastated by 
their husbands because they actually, many cases, they never met before in Japan. So Picture Brides is a system where you exchange pictures. It could be a false picture too. Some men use uh, the pictures, you know, taken uh, when they are young <laughs> or they use brother's pictures and so on. And women don't really know uh, who they're actually marrying until they arrive in Canada and actually meet their husbands. And of course, um, many marriages don't work out as they, uh, as women wished. So sometimes women actively chose to work as a sex worker, which, you know, some, in some cases they found it more liberating than stuck in the, the marriage. So we were talking before about the disciplinary effects of discourse. You're approaching this primarily from the kind of communications and discursive angle. So can you talk about some of your research questions, what interests you most about this, and, and how you're looking at this from the perspective of communications? So this particular paper was a kind of um, not part of my major research that I'm doing right now. I'm interested in how this history has been talked about today in the contemporary context, both in Japan and Canada and also in the United States, looking at how this past, this particular past, is remembered or memorialized or talked about. So looking at the current discourse about this and how the, the story is sometimes reappropriated for the current political context. And I'm also doing some archival research. I mean, this newspaper is part of that um, archival research and also doing some field work in the locations where Japanese brothels were located. Hmm. Can you talk about your field work? What do you, when you go down to, I guess in this case, the former Japantown, hmm. going to those sites, what kind of things are you looking for? What Are you talking to people who were there? So I'm basically following the footsteps of Osada, who did this research to write his own series, but also Japanese women writers who also followed Osada's footstep and visited those towns. So one of the writers is Miyoko Kudo. She's a nonfiction writer, currently based in Japan, but she was based in Vancouver when she was doing research about Japanese sex workers from the turn of the 20th century. And she wrote two books out of her research. One is called Kanashi Metsuki no Hyoryusha, which was published in 1991. The other is Kanada Yugiro ni Furu Yukiwa. Uh, this was published in 1993. And in her book, she visits cemetery, old cemeteries in places like Nelson, Crumbrook, and other places. So what I did was, I didn't really expect to discover a lot of historical traces of those women uh, in interior towns, but I did visit cemeteries in Nelson and Crumbrook. So in the cemeteries, I found some headstones of Japanese women who died around this time. So came back to Vancouver, I did some archival research, I collected some death records of these women. And so uh, I got some information about their, you know, the, the cause of death, how old they were, sometimes uh, which part of Japan they are from, or how long they lived in Canada before they died, and so on. There's a section in the death record, or death registration, where the occupation of the deceased person is indicated. Sometimes it's left blank, uh, sometimes it says housewife mm-hmm. or something, but I found one case where it said sport. And sport apparently is a, a ter- term used for sex workers. Mm-hmm. Why sport? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so how many women are, are we talking about? And I'm, I'm also curious, mm. you know, you said the cause of death. I mean, if we're trying to determine how many of them would have been sex workers, I imagine 
had they been in the country very shortly, mm -hmm. maybe if their cause of death had been some type of venereal disease, might have suggested that they were involved in sex work. Any anything that we can glean from that evidence? I expected that that maybe some women died from venereal disease, but that wasn't the case most of the time. There was a, like a brain tumor, a complication uh, at birth, giving birth, yes. and so on. So I'm just talking about handful of women. The number is not large. And in fact, according to Osada's trees, many women actually returned back to Japan. So it's, it's difficult to talk about numbers because they didn't really leave a lot of documents or they, they kept moving. Mm -hmm. So that means that they moved across the different jurisdictions. So you might find death record of one person or you might find immigration record, but it's extremely difficult to follow the step of these women. Right. And as you mentioned, they migrate around Canada as well. And, and so what was the kind of distribution? You mentioned some of these interior towns in BC, but I mean, how far east did these women make it? Right. So this book version of the Osada series includes a map hmm. and it goes as far as Ontario. Hmm. So a lot of them are located in BC or hmm. maybe Alberta, but uh, there are a few spots in even Saskatchewan, Manitoba and Ontario. And on this map, they would indicate the presence of the brothel, even the number of women who were working there sometimes. But then there was also some of these images of the women. I mean, it almost sounds like a tour guide in a way, right? And written in Japanese, presumably. Would this have been something that Japanese travelers, as they're making their way across Canada, would have consulted? Mm -hmm. Yeah, particularly men, though. Men, uh, men involved in the sex trade are kind of described as pioneers. Hmm. So he kind of names a key figures in the Devil Cave, the underground world, and portraying them as the pioneers mm -hmm. of that underground business. And I understand that because many of the early Japanese immigrants to Canada came for primarily economic reasons, there was a very large male population in Canada. And this is why we have the picture brides phenomenon, you mentioned before that the issues of the Taidiku Nipo with the Makutsu Cave series was big sellers, right? And so you wonder if this largely male population of Japanese immigrants who seem to be starving for female companionship maybe are, have their kind of prurient interest in the newspaper and maybe they're using this book almost as a tour guide for their own travels across Ontario. That's an interesting point. But um, the topic around sex workers, a romance with sex workers was quite common hmm. among literary work hmm. that was published in immigrant newspapers in Japanese community. So I think that because the number of women were small at the time and many women were engaged in service work for Japanese customers at restaurants or bars and also brothels, it's kind of natural to think that that became kind of a common topic of interest among men mm -hmm. or male leadership. Mm -hmm. And then when is it that these brothels, I mean, this whole kind of story about the Japanese prostitutes working in brothels, when does that fade away? Does it continue all the way until 42? Or is it mainly centralized to the 19-teens, 1920s? I think it was centralized at, around that time. Mm -hmm. um, and the topic, I guess, was diversified later on as the population of women increased a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
one of your interests is how this history is being mobilized today. So what do you mean by that? In what ways is this history being mobilized? Well, so it's different how the, the story is interpreted in Japan and here in Canada. So in Japan, I'm looking at a few works by Japanese women writers from the 1980s and 90s. And they take it as a story of Japanese nations. So looking at Japanese sex workers in Canada or outside of Japan as people who belong to Japan, but they're neglected by the mainstream society. So we should shed light on those fellow Japanese women who maybe die without being noticed by mm. people back in Japan. Mm-hmm. And whereas in Canada, the stories of Japanese sex workers in Canada, for example, is part of the wider narrative about Japanese Canadian history. Mm-hmm. So it's interpreted as part of multicultural history of Canada. Mm-hmm. And that poses an interesting question, because whenever we talk about diaspora communities, it does raise this question of, Whose history do they belong to? Is it a Japanese national story? Is it a Canadian national story? I mean, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I'm trying to kind of politicize mm-hmm. the way in which their stories has been deappropriated for different reasons. So yeah, it's, it's a really tricky question and it's hard to say whose history it is. And it really depends on the interpretation. These women are, occupy a very interesting position because they're transient migrants who didn't really settle anywhere in Canada, or they might have settled eventually, but again, many women died in transit. So they might have thought about you know, going back to Japan, or they might have thought about settling in in Canada, but they didn't have privilege to belong to uh, the mainstream society in both, I guess, countries. Hmm. So I rather want to kind of leave it open. Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website. Meiji at 150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.